Hello and happy, happy Hanukkah to all who celebrate. If all goes as planned, I'll be back at my mother's house and eating a fresh potato laka at the very moment that you're listening to this episode, which today is with the very, very funny comedian H. Allen Scott. They've got a brand new documentary out about their life called Latter-day Jew. It tells the true story of H. Allen leaving Mormonism, finding Judaism, and along the way getting testicular cancer. It's a comedy, I promise. And it ends with a bar mitzvah, so a truly happy ending. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. What was it about getting cancer and going through chemotherapy that finally made you realize I'm converting to Judaism? Yeah, a lot of people ask that because it is, I think, I think we as a people have an obsession with um, something is because of this. There has to be a catalyst for something. You have to have a reason for doing something. We live in like a black and white, I think, mentality when like most of life happens in the gray area and the nuance of things. And people want to say, oh, you got cancer. You were scared of dying you convert into Judaism. That's sort of the natural sort of connection that people make. And it is the case for some people. I mean, many people do that. For me, it was more, I finally had some time on my hands. Like Jews make you work. Like even like reform Jews make you work to become a Jew. Reform is a little bit chiller, but you still have to like take a class and you have to like attend so many different things and do things and you just have to like do stuff. And it's a lot of work. And I had, I was, I was on disability and then I had a bit of like a mental breakdown after chemo. And so that gave me a good another year to like chill. And so I just had a lot of time to convert, you know? So it's just the time factor. It really was because I was always, when I left for high school and went to college at DePaul University, I remember I had a counselor there who I, my performance and my, I was always influenced by like Bette Midler or like Barbara Streisand or, you know, the Nora Ephron. She was an amazing writer that like I was obsessed with. And I, in some, some ways I would take the vernacular of how they spoke, you know, and I would turn it into my act. So whenever I was doing stand up or whenever I was doing anything in drag or anything ever, you know, I was always sort of speaking in this way that wasn't a kid from Missouri would speak, you know, and it was performance. It was showy. It was very sort of, I don't know, vaudevillian, I guess. And uh, and my advisor thought I was Jewish and she asked if I was going home for the high holidays and I didn't know what that meant. And then she gave me some stuff to read and I was like, oh, I get this. These were, these were some of the questions that I had as a kid that couldn't be answered that I then got in the stuff that I was reading in school. And then I just didn't do anything about it because I was in my 20s and like who converts in their 20s just because like it's Tuesday, like nobody does that. So I didn't convert. And then I came to Los Angeles. I got I got staffed on a show and then I got sick real quick and I had to leave all of that. And yeah, and then I just started the process. How did getting cancer like how did it change us how like you move through the world like yeah. uh, like even today? It does. It definitely does. Um there's the good and the bad of it. The good is that for me I always say like cancer has allowed me to say no to things, which I'm really grateful for because before cancer and chemo, I would be obsessed with staying skinny or I would be obsessed with, you know, fitting in in a certain circle or like doing a certain thing or even like with what I really want to be doing in my career and my life. 
I stopped doing because I, everyone was like, oh, you get sta- to get staffed on a show, you do stand-up and you only do stand-up and that is it. And so I only did that. And I never really cared about it because I didn't want ever, I never wanted to be on late night. Like, fuck Jimmy Kimmel. He's so annoying. I didn't care about doing any of those things, but I would like assimilate to just do those things. And I was just sort of always saying yes to everything. And then after chemo, I I just got so tired of all of that. And I just, I, I hated half the people I was friends with because they weren't friends. And I hated everything I was doing and I hated everything. And so I stopped and I just started saying no to things. And I focused on a very small circle of people in my life. And I focused my work in less attention grabbing ways. And I wanted to do the things I wanted to do, which was write and perform in my own kind of way and perform my own kind of shows and do entertainment in my own kind of way. And it's worked. I make money. Not a lot. You said... (laughs) Yeah. Um, you said there was good and bad. Was that the oh, good and yeah. bad? Or no, what's so the bad? bad is that um, now there's the constant layer of fear, which I'm in therapy for. But uh, there is that sort of, I'm not a hypochondriac. I never really was. Um, but now whenever there's a problem, I'm always very suspicious of what that problem is. Be it like, because there is like, after chemo, the chemo that I had, there's a 10-year window for leukemia. So I'm always like a, scared of like, is this chest pain this? Is this arm? Is this pain this? Like, what is this? Like, I don't know. There's just a fear, you know? I'm not afraid of dying at all, but there's a fear of like not being able to do the things that I really love to do again. Cause I had to take like two, three years off. And that was hard for someone who's 30. And, you know, I just got, I got on a TV show. Like, like I was doing the things I, felt was the right thing to do. And then I couldn't do any of those things. And it got really hard. And you had to take two or three years off in terms of like career and personal things, right? Yeah, I had to stop everything. I mean, chemo was a year and then there was the two years of sort of recovery and then the mental breakdown that happened, which was just sort of like, I jumped back into work and I couldn't handle it, you know? And um, Mentally, I had not dealt with anything. And then a good friend of mine who was also going through chemo passed away the day I finished chemo. And so there was the trauma of that and what that meant for me. Because we were the same age, same everything. I mean, we were carbon copies of each other. Different cancers, though. Yeah, it was a strange moment where I didn't really know how any of it worked and, like, what was going on. I think that, like, mental breakdown is a phrase that like we colloquially throw around nowadays. I actually had it. (laughs) Yeah. Do you mind if I ask like what that looked like? I'll tell you the exact experience. I was trying to stay skinny. I was at 24 hour fitness in West or in Hollywood um, at the Arclight Cinema. And I was parked in the parking garage there, which is a shit parking garage. And a week before I had left my iPad on. When you have such anxiety and sort of the signs of a breakdown coming is you either like self-sabotaging? Are you doing things that are out of the ordinary for you? And I never lose anything. I don't lose things, but I lost an iPad at the gym, which is insane. And things weren't going right. Like nothing was working right. And that day, it was a Tuesday, I was leaving 24-hour fitness and I couldn't find my keys in my bag for my car. Then I finally found my keys and then I couldn't find my car. And then I couldn't breathe and then I couldn't see. And like, it just, it was like bright lights in my eyes. And I literally had to stop where I was because I didn't know where to go because I couldn't see where to go. And they called the police and then my friend came and it was like a whole 
big TV movie of the week moment for me, which, you know, should have been filmed because it would have gone viral. But it just, everything stopped there. And I was hospitalized for a bit. And then I got out and went to therapy and slowly started getting back to me. That's really scary. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great. It wasn't a good time at all. I remember I was just talking with a friend recently about it. I like slept for a month after that. I couldn't, I read a lot of Joan Didion because that's what you do when you're depressed. And I, um, I slept for a month. And it was, I'm really glad I went through it all. And I'm very sensitive to my own anxiety now. And which is why I'm so grateful to be able to say no to things because I know what I can handle and what I can't handle. For example, there's like this for the film, there's a lot of appearances, things that I have to do now. And we're traveling with for festivals and stuff. And I go to a lot of synagogues and a lot of synagogues want me to speak after Shabbat, but they want me to actually then go to the dinner and Shabbat and all of that. And there's so much anxiety involved in waiting those two hours to get to the point that I have to speak because everyone knows everything about me while I'm sitting there. And it's like this weird moment of, I feel like I'm on a Petri dish in a way. They know about my cancer. They know about everything. And then they want to talk to me about those things. And they want to like casually mention friends that they have that have had cancer and died. And they want to like communicate and connect on a really real level. And I love that. That's great. But mentally, I can't handle that. Oh, and you come from a comedy background. Yeah. So you're used to like making people laugh and then going home. Well, and there's also a disconnect too. I mean, I, I, part of my comedy is I love connecting with a crowd and I love talking with a crowd. I, I love it. But the difference is I control the conversation. I control everything. There's not, we're not really having a conversation. We're having a one-way conversation and I'm controlling the entire situation. And even when I was doing stand-up, like traveling and opening for people and stuff, I would always pass on the meet and greets just because I couldn't handle, especially after cancer, but before cancer, I, the meet and greets were always just too much for me. Like I said, I don't crave attention. It just kind of comes. And I, I don't necessarily always know how to handle the attention. In drag, it's easier, surprisingly. Um, but yeah, it's hard. Well, that anxiety you describe is very Jewish. Is. So that, like, that See, tracks. I'm totally you know? Jewish. <laughs> I'm authentically Jewish. I confirmed it here. Mm-hmm. Just kidding. That's horrible. That's right. You're a Jew too. I am. Yeah. Reform? Yeah. 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 Sorry. <laughs> Border reform? Um, no, I, yeah. Uh, I mean, beyond liberal. Yes. Um, when I think about my Jewish upbringing, mm-hmm. I think about our connection to history. Yes. And how... I'm obsessed with history. Yeah. And yeah. like I, as a people, we've been persecuted um, forever from getting kicked out of ancient Egypt to mm-hmm. the Holocaust. Yeah. And that is such a part of, I think, Jewish culture, actually, in America. Yeah. And I wonder like how... like. I, I feel a connection to that because it's like my like literal like blood ancestors. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about somebody who converted, who like yeah. doesn't have that bloodline, like how you feel that connection to history. Yeah, there is a sense, I think, for a lot of Jews by choice. I don't necessarily like that phrase, but it is the phrase people use. So let's go with it. Um, but there is a sense of sort of being a fraud, you know, that that you'll never be taken authentically as a Jew. And you experience, I've experienced that in... I mean, a lot of the things that I do, there's like Orthodox or Hasidic Jews that um, love to be very vocal and loud at my appearances and not like me. Um, and then there's the other ones who don't, who think that the, because we've went to Israel in the film that we're you know, pro the horrible things that are happening in Israel and that's not the case, but they love to protest. So we're getting protests on both sides, which is very strange sometimes. And 
And it's weird for me because I do feel authentically Jewish. And, and also if we're talking about my bloodline, like my father's Catholic. Oh yeah, my father's Catholic too. You know, it's not like full 100%. Yeah, but you have it still. You have it in the right sense. I do. The Jewish Which, right sense, yeah. quote unquote. In a, in a lucky way that Judaism yeah. says like it's the mother's blood. Yes, exactly. And I don't have that at all. My mother is very much not Jewish. Um, and I do struggle with that in some groups. I've, I've come to a place where I feel very grounded in my Jewishness in that I know I don't have the blood lineage to back up being Jewish. And I don't know the persecuted experience that some Jews can speak to authentically. I, and I, I can't speak to that necessarily. But what I can do as a Jew is one of the things that I think that is hard for Judaism is that people are leaving religion. And I think in a weird way, my role as a Jew is to communicate about my experience as a Jew in order to continue the conversation about sort of maybe pushing back the boundaries of what we think of as Judaism and understanding that it is a people, it is a spirituality. It isn't necessarily an organized religion in the sense that you go to one place and that's what you do and then you leave. Like you are authentically Jewish at all times and Shabbat can mean a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily have to mean at a temple, you know, like I'm planning right now a Shabbat drag experience and like Shabbat can be a lot more things. And I think by having that conversation, the best way I can be the best Jew possible is using my voice and continuing to talk and tell my story and listening to other people's stories. And that's how I fit into the Jewish timeline. And I am very happy with that. Of course. Yeah. I, I also think that um, we've lost so many Jews. Like we need to welcome more and more into the fold. I think so too. <laughs> I think and plus, and Jews, it's such a small, small spiritual faith in the world in terms of numbers. And there need to be more people who, because I mean, I do think people in general, and I think queer people are more perceptive to understanding spirituality than I think cis straight people, because we are adaptable. We have to adapt as a queer person in every day of our lives, especially depending upon where you live in the world. You have to adapt your queerness for the setting in which you are in sometimes. And in doing that, we understand the need for community. We need. We understand the need for spirituality in some way, for a sense of direction, for a sense of purpose for what we're doing. Because if you have to adapt who you are as a queer person, you then have to be aware that you have to be strong in, in who you are as a queer person to be able to understand that you're only adapting it to stay safe in this situation or to have this conversation or just to get through the fucking day. Like, yeah. you know, like that's all. And yet you still leave being the fabulous queer person you are. It's just, you have to adapt sometimes. And I think because of that, queer people are more open to spirituality. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Judaism is so gendered. Yes. And I bring that up I because, don't like that. right, in, in the cover of your documentary poster, Latter Day yeah. Jew, it says it's time to become a man. I hate that. I don't. I had no doing in that. Oh, really? I, 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 uh, I understand the need to market. I, I get it. I get, I get the Hollywood machine behind it. I have grown in recent years really uncomfortable with gender norms in general and gender labels, and. I mean, I personally am not strict about using the they, them prof the pronouns, but like I prefer that most of the time. Being labeled a man is really toxic. And that's an area of the film that we couldn't really get into because it just, it, it, it took with the story. It was just too separate from the rest of the story. And masculinity is definitely not a part of the story, but the bar mitzvah is a part of the story. And that is a very gendered part 
of Judaism because there's the bar and the bat and there's a separation of gender there. And like the, some of the most sacred places like the Wailing Wall are yeah. separated by sex. And we talked to in in the um, in the film a trans woman who is, I mean, she's very much more Jewish than I am. And she and her experience in visiting the wall, both on the male side and the female side. And, and you know, there's movements out there like Sarah Silverman's sister, uh, Rabbi, I forget her last name now, but she... Um, she holds protests at the wall to sort of degender the wall. And there's a lot of progress that has to be made. And I don't like that me getting, the, the poster says me getting ready to be a man. It's not something that I, that sits well with me. But I also think, you know, I'm not, I, I, this wasn't my idea to do this film. Like I was approached to do this film and it was a part of, I was working on a true crime comedy series. Like, I mean, it was not what I expected to do. And uh, this woman who was producing the the show I was working on, she read my stuff and she's also Jewish and she thought it would be a great story to tell because I was planning to have sort of a low-key bar mitzvah, but then she was like, well, why don't we blow it up and do it in fashion? And I said, yeah, only if we can tell a larger story about what it means to be a Jew right now. And how that's changed. Yeah, exactly. And... I strictly wanted it to be that. I, I didn't want it to be just about me getting ready for a bar mitzvah. I needed to tell a larger story about what it means to be queer, what it means to be a queer Jew, what it means to find yourself in a different age and not necessarily do what you're expected to do. Yeah, and you are not the only person who feels a conflict with the gendering in Judaism yeah. by any means. Oh, no. There's a, there's a whole community out there. Yeah, it's yeah. not like just queer people. It's not just non-binary people. Women Jews have been uh, angry at that for years and years and years. I mean, hundreds of years probably. And we just didn't have the language. We didn't have, just like we were talking about earlier, we know there's a problem, but sometimes you don't have the language. And it, time it takes time for the language to come. And that goes back to understanding that sometimes you have to be moldable to yeah. the situation you're in in order to get to the good place. And, and speaking of language, it was only last week that yeah. I saw you tweet that you prefer they, them pronouns. Yeah, I never really did it publicly. I mean, in my life, I always, that's just how I live, but... Yeah, I just want to know like how recent has this been for you? Yeah, it's been in the past few years that I have grown uncomfortable with the level of sort of toxic male energy that exists both in this industry that I work in, but also just in society and on the internet in general. I, I think I think masculinity influences a lot of the hate that the internet is, and I hate that. <laughs> I don't want it. I don't I don't I don't subscribe to it. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean I I, I would confess that, that I am I think male presenting in my own kind of way. I mean, I still have nails and I do the thing and I look, I'm male presenting, I am. And and I think stereotypically, societally male presenting, I, if you have to put a label on it. And I don't want to try to co-opt the experience of an authentically trans person or someone who is gender non-binary because I don't think anyone walking down the street is going to see me as anything other than stereotypically male. That said, I think as a political statement and as a outlook for the future that I want to see, that I believe in, and that I think is there and is possible. I think if we get rid of the gender roles in the way that they exist now and maybe understand that gender can be a little bit fluid, that we'd be a lot happier and nicer to each other. Yeah. And that's why I want they, them. And, and so do you do you use a term non-binary? I only want to use H. Allen Scott or Sadie Pines. That's my gender. Like, that's who I am. And 
I've always felt that words like gender non-binary or even pronouns like they, them are there to make other people feel comfortable with how they talk about me. And you feel comfortable however you want to talk comfortable. And I'll push back if, if I am uncomfortable with how you're describing me or talking about me if I feel it's necessary. But I don't like any of the words. I just want to be me. And I think that this is kind of exactly how you describe Judaism. There's yeah. no one way to be Jewish. There's no one way to do gender. Yeah, it's true. I really do think there's also no one way to do sexuality, which is, you know, of course, very different from gender. And there's there's no one way to do anything. Like I said, life happens in the gray areas. It's not black and white. And I think we should be more accepting of that. And I wanted to ask you about that just because the majority of people in this podcast who use they, them pronouns, um, they've used them for years. Yeah. And so like, it's a different experience to hear about somebody who has like, just like newly embraced this identity more. Yeah. I don't want to um, put down the years of sort of authentic gender non-binary life that these people have used. Cause I think that they, I mean, they're the real warriors in the fight. They're the ones who are doing it. I just think that myself and the place that I'm going to in my life, I don't feel comfortable identifying as stereotypically male or, or societally male. I just don't. And I think that there is a, there's political strength in saying that. I've always felt that us as queer people just being out and open in our lives, just like people of color in general, they, we have no choice but to be a political statement because of the society we live in. You know, we didn't ask to be a political statement, but we are. And if you are out and you are open and you are, um, you push back on discrimination and ignorance, then you are a walking political statement and political activity. And I think for me, identifying and using male pronouns is a political statement I don't want to make. And I, I don't agree with anymore. And, um, not that I ever really agreed with it. It was just, like I said, I did what society told me to be and do. You and didn't know there was a choice. Exactly. And understanding that we can go in different ways and change and evolve and be different things. And I don't know what I'll be when I'm 50. And, and again, to compare 15. this <laughs> and again to compare this to Judaism, it's like Jews don't have all the answers. No. Like it sounds like you don't have all the answers right now. And I think like we need to hear more from people like that. Yeah. Uh, that's what I that's one of the things that I do love about Judaism is that it's for me, it's the only quote unquote religion in the world, I feel, that you that I know of at least, that you can openly not believe in God, that you can openly not subscribe to the idea of heaven or whatever. Whereas in Mormonism, I had to believe in those things in order to be a Mormon. And I love that in Judaism. Now, of course, if I go to Israel and I talk to like an Hasidic Jew, they're going to be like, what, you don't believe in God? Bye. Like, you're not, you can't be here. Um, but in the Jewish community that I have here in Los Angeles and New York that I love and are my family, I can openly be like, I don't know about this God thing. To me, Oprah's God. I don't know about everything else. But like, Right now, my God in this world is Oprah. And then from that, we can have discussions. And many queer people won't disagree with you. Yeah, of course. Oprah is everything. Oprah and Gail should just run the world. Gail's actually my favorite, but I have to say Oprah because everyone identifies with Oprah. Well, Gail's on the rise. So like, Gail is on the rise. She is my CBS this morning, every morning. It is my Gail. (laughs) I love my Gail. I don't want to step away too far from Sadie Pines. You oh, mentioned yeah. your drag name. Yeah. Uh, you're pretty new to doing drag, right? Yeah. I mean, I had done some drag in my early years, really bad drag, and uh, in Chicago. And I had always been around the drag scene and entertainment scene 
you know, having worked with World of Wonder in the past, and I've, I mean, I've been around drag in the past a lot, my career. And I used to host a show in New York called Serious LOL. We would always have drag queens perform. So like drag has been a part of my entertainment experience, artistic experience. But um, in the past few years, it's been become more of a, it's my only creative outlet that I actually, I think I'm enjoying at the moment. And so I want to explore that a little bit more. And that's one of the things that I do love about what happened after chemo is that I don't feel the need to like focus on one thing or do one thing just to have that be... I'm a stand-up or I'm a comedy writer. Like, I don't want any of that. Like, I want to be able to explore the itch that I have. And right now that itch is in the Mercedes Pines. Why do you think it's drag is the, like the most exciting thing right now? Well, I mean, I think the moment helped me a little bit, the confidence in the moment. And I think, I mean, I'll freely admit I didn't have confidence to be, to really pursue drag early on in my career. Um, and putting on drag gives you confidence, right? It can also make you feel like shit, though. Really? Too. But yes, it does give you confidence. There's a there's a, the, the other night we went to a we had a gig and um, I didn't feel confident in my look. And I remember I was actually I was I, I DM'd immediately Ben Delacrim, who's a friend, and I was like, I feel uncomfortable. And this is like one of the first. It was one of the first moments in this sort of new wave of me doing drag, sort of actively in a professional sense, that I didn't feel comfortable with how I looked as Sadie, and. And, you know, she gave me some great advice that, like, the things that I notice, other people don't necessarily notice. And to to the audience, you are Sadie Pines and you're fierce and you're the dream and you're the funny one and you're the one that people want to be with. But to you, you see a weird bump in your hair. Yeah. And I was obsessed with this fucking bump in my hair because it was teased wrong and, like, it looked like I had a tumor in my head. And... um and I only saw... That's all I saw was that. And also I used this weird gloss that started to drip. But it was, like, nothing was fitting and it, it felt and with my kind of anxiety that can like <laughs> make me insane and I almost canceled on the the whole thing because I just couldn't get get it together but you know yeah it usually does give me confidence and it makes me feel protected I think from the attention that sometimes is uncomfortable for me and it also makes me feel like I have something to say and people are listening because when you're in drag, people listen because they're it's almost like they can't not look away from who you are. And so you control the conversation, you control the attention in the room, you control the attention in whatever moment you're in. Whereas as H. Allen, I still control the attention. I'm pretty good at that. But it's 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 a little bit harder, you know, and people can disregard they might leave and not remember Mace all the time. Whereas with Sadie, they're always going to remember Sadie. And because um, H. Allen or any other person mm-hmm. walks into a room, it, they're a person in the room. But a yeah. drag queen walks in and it's like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, you want to go talk to her. You do. You want to, you either want to go talk to her, or take a picture with her, or you're, you, you're, you're like me and you have anxiety and you're afraid of approaching someone. And so you don't, but you watch from afar. And as, you know, an artist and as someone who, you know, is a little bit of a showgirl, like you see that person who's afraid to come up to you and you go up to that person because you recognize that. Like, I always recognize in the room the one person who, like, feels uncomfortable because I can get that energy because I know what that energy is like. I feel it really authentically and it is a part of my experience. And I make a point of trying to bring them into my world a little bit. Um, RuPaul's Drag Race is the biggest thing in the drag world right now. Is that a goal for you? Um... I don't know. I don't have goals, really. I don't like goals. I never have. For I don't, drag or for anything? For anything in oh. my life. I, I, I very quickly learned that 
shit can change real quick, real fast. Um, and I think I'm talented enough to do it at some point. I don't know about now. I think that would uh, professionally would be a good step, but I also don't think it's necessary. I, I think... Oh, really? Yeah. Because I, th- I think about the exposure the show gives drag queens, and I don't know how somebody else can compete with that. Yeah, but I think that also plays into a very sort of toxic, I think, masculine idea of competition that I don't necessarily agree with. And I get that we're in a cutthroat business, but I think organically competition is rooted in this idea of like masculine business practices that I don't like. I don't think it's the only way now. And I do think that at some point RuPaul's Drag Race will go away and it won't be the platform that it is. And there will be another platform in another way. And what's great about RuPaul's Drag Race is that it is making drag an acceptable art form so that other drag queens who aren't on RuPaul's Drag Race are able to get cast in different things or do different things or be featured in different ways that maybe not now add to the exposure that an artist needs to continue their career, but could potentially in a few years lead to that. So I don't necessarily think it's the only way to be successful as a drag queen. I think it's a helpful way to be successful. And I, of course, would love it. But um, I don't, I hate the idea of that being the only way. Sure. You know? And I think that one of the subtle things that the show has taught people is that drag is a profession. Yeah. And I think it kind of has ignored the fact that the majority of drag queens do it as just a hobby. Yes. There yes. Um one of the things for me always, I love anyone that can look good. Like look good, do your thing, great. But I can't look good. <laughs> like I can, but I can't I'm never gonna be that kind of skinny or that kind of pretty or that kind of whatever. Uh, I think I am in my own kind of way, but I don't feel like I ever fit into the certain molds that society tells drag queens they maybe they should be. And you have to have personality. And that's the one thing that I know I have. I can get through any situation with my personality. I and love that you think that. It's the only I'm thing kidding, I have. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> I know, right? No, it's the only thing I have. I'm so bad at so many things that like the only thing I know how to do is to make people laugh and to like be funny and make maybe people happy for like a small moment. And like that I'm happy about. That I, That I know I'm really, really good at. If you want me to like direct something or like do your taxes or whatever. Like I can't do any of those things. I've been fired from so many jobs. Like I only can do (laughs) this one thing and that's me. And I remember as a kid, I wrote in some essay, I was like, I want to make money off being me. And like, I want to make a living off being me because I knew that that was the best thing that I could do, you know? And I've done it, kind of. Well, that is a goal that you like achieved. Yeah, I think so. And I continue to want to be successful at it. And drag is a way of doing that because to me, drag is all personality. You know, that is the art form is being able to take your personality and hone it into this drag persona that is a version of you, but isn't necessarily you, but it it's all based to me on personality. And yeah. and yet there are really um, specific technical skills in terms yes. of like makeup and mm-hmm. costuming. Yeah. Um, your makeup, people can see on your Instagram, your makeup is very, very good. Oh, thank you. How long did it take you to become comfortable with that? Well, I did theater for years. Um, so like I knew how to contour. Uh, and I knew how to do some things. And it wasn't that different from doing a fe- like a woman's face? No, it is different. Uh, but 
It takes a while. I don't know. I mean, when you when you're as lazy as I am, you have a lot of time to practice things. Um, and I, well, I, I wouldn't call sitting at home and practicing makeup being lazy. I mean, but I'm still also watching Real Housewives while I do it. Like, I'm very lazy. I um, call that multitasking. Thank you. Yes, I'm multitasking in a lazy way. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't have the skills to design. Michael does all of, my boyfriend Michael does all of the looks. He was on Project Runway. He knows how to do all of that. Michael Brembilla. Um, and uh, yeah, he does all my looks and he teaches me about color. I don't understand color. That's something that's hard for me. I'm not, I don't see how colors connect to each other. And so that's my learning curve that I really have to have with him. But it is, our, our relationship really is very much, it's a bit rooted in love, of course, but it's also rooted in our artistic expression in the world and what we want to be doing. And we together do Sadie Pines and we create who she is. And it's- uh, It's collaborative. It is. It's very, very collaborative. I mean- He's so talented. I'm so grateful that he's there. And I think he was also part of the catalyst for how I could find the confidence to do Sadie in a professional way. I don't like half-assing anything. Like I told him, I was like, pictures aren't being posted until I feel comfortable that the makeup is good. Like, I just don't like looking like an amateur, which is weird because I'm, I think it's, a, I think it's an authentic part of the artistic experience to like grow and let people see you grow. But there's a professionalism in me that like, I don't want to put it out there until it feels good, until I feel good about it. Like it's a profession, like it meets the professional standards in which I look to. I gotta look good. She's gotta look good. I agree. And I think you are. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Of course. All right, that delightful voice that you just heard was H. Allen Scott, and their documentary is called Latter Day Jew. Now, I know it's the holidays, but don't worry, we will be back next week with a brand new episode. So hit subscribe in the Luminary app if you haven't already. And until then, I still wanna know who you wanna hear from in the new year. So come find me on social media and let me know. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. We're brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come check out our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Jordan Gosbury, and myself with sound engineering by Mark Bush. We will see you next week. <laughs>